I'm Brian. I'm Caroline. And this is It's Not About the Bunny, a podcast about Twin Peaks. We still don't have a tagline. Sorry. So now we're going to talk about episode eight, which is the end of the season. And I'm a little sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I always forget that, how quickly it goes by. It is a very short season, but just so much happens and it feels much longer just because it's so rich, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. But uh, we're going to do for our next episode an overview of the first season. Um, But for now, let's just talk about this episode. So it's a Mark Frost joint. He both wrote it and directed it. What do you think? Um, I, I was surprised that I didn't like this episode that much on this mm. rewatch. I guess I don't want to say that I disliked it. Yeah. But I was pleasantly surprised by a lot of episodes this this time around. Obviously, they're like the classic episodes, the, the pilot, all of the Lynch-directed episodes, basically. But then there were some that I hadn't remembered so clearly. I, I didn't remember the details so clearly. And this time around, I was struck by you know, how much I enjoyed it just as a TV show um, and how rich a lot of the episodes were. This one is obviously the culmination of all the different plot threads and is in a lot of ways a pretty shameless attempt to um, to drive up ratings with a cliffhanger sure. and, and ensure uh, that second season. Yeah, it definitely feels the most TV-like of the episodes in the first season, the most like a soap opera. I don't think it's an accident that we get more glimpses of invitation to love in this one. Um, Cause I know, you know, Mark Frost loved all that stuff, uh, which is fine. It's, it's funny. It's campy, but um, yeah, it definitely, it definitely feels very TV. It's just nothing but plot, nothing but threads getting tied up or cliffhangers or, I don't know. Right. It's maybe the least Lynchian. I think that's right. I think that's right. There's some, there's some cool stuff, but I, yeah, I think it's clear. This one is Mark Frost's baby. Right. And as for his direction, um, do we know that if he directed any other episodes? Mm, He must have. Let me look that up real quick. Talk amongst yourselves. (laughs) Well, he, he does, he does a fine job. Yeah. I think it's good. Yes. Uh, and there's some, he does, it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just the a basic presentation. It's, he tries some creative moves. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I noticed was um, the shot, uh, the close up of Jacoby's eye. Yeah, that was really nice. That dissolves into the roulette wheel. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty cool. And then also when Jacques is explaining to, when Jacques is talking to Cooper, telling him about Laura's last night Mm -hmm. and what they did, there's the uh, close-up on Jacques' mouth as he's talking. That was very effective at, I guess, emphasizing how disgusting Jacques is. Yes. Um, And And then cutting back to Cooper's reaction to hearing it and his... Uh, his fury. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At what he's hearing. Yeah. Um, so I just looked it up. This is the only episode he directed, it looks like. He, you know, obviously wrote a bunch of them, 
Um, but yeah, only directed this one. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it didn't really blow me away. Um, and I wonder if there's, I wonder why he wanted to, to step in and direct this one. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's, I think Mark Frost is primarily a writer, not a director, and that's fine. He's a good writer. Right. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's pretty common for a yes. showrunner to direct the last episode that's of right. the series or something. It seems like that happens all the time with more prestige right. shows. Um, and, you know, obviously David Lynch did the pilot and there's a kind of symmetry to that. Mm -hmm. The co-creator doing the last one. Right. All right. Well, I guess we'll move on to the plot. Mm -hmm. And we're going to just kind of march through the plot. And uh, I've got my notes up here. But this is, I think that we'll uncover some larger themes as we move along. Mm -hmm. But unlike some of the past episodes, uh, I don't think we can really, there aren't like as many big themes yeah. that we can pick out to begin with. It's really, uh, basically they're, they're, uh, they're, just pull, they're just pulling out all the stops of the plot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like every plot line has to blow up. Yes. By the end of the episode. And it almost it's almost comical the way the show, yeah, even kind of uh uh your attention to to how absurd it is that all of these plot lines blow up because in the next episode, mm -hmm. first episode, the second season, they're they'll tell Cooper everything that happened. Yes. And Cooper says, Oh, how long was I out? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to get through, but I think we'll, uh, as we go through, we'll be able to make some bigger connections. Mm -hmm. So we start with Jacoby. Yes. Or really we start with James and Donna in Jacoby's office, retrieving the tape from the coconut. Yeah. Jacoby's so strange. Yes, yeah, so. I know this is Twin Peaks and everybody's strange and that's a stupid thing to say, but I feel like he in particular is just the weirdest person in the town. <laughs> right, well... And I'm including the log lady. I think she's more normal than Jacoby. It is interesting on a show where almost every character is strange by design. This is the one character where they're constantly trying to... They're like hitting you over the head with how strange they he is. They keep upping the ante. Like, oh, he keeps a tape made by one of his patients in a coconut. And it's already weird that he was making her record stuff for him instead of just like listening to her talk at a session. I don't know. Yeah, that doesn't really explain uh, what was his therapeutic strategy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or did she just make these tapes kind of outside of their therapeutic relationship yeah. to titillate him? Right, possibly. Possibly. Right. It's pretty unclear. Also, he's obsessed with Hawaii. That's a, that's mm -hmm. part of his thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think Russ Tamblin though is great Yes. in this role because he has this sort of innate joviality, I guess. It, maybe it's just like a remnant of him being a musical guy um, in the beginning of his career, but 
there's just this undercurrent of menace to him at the same time. I think when you watch him in the pilot, like he immediately goes on your short list of people who could have killed Lara just because of his affect. And it, it isn't, you know, only because of his different colored sunglasses and all the weird stuff about him. It's really just how he behaves and interacts with people. That's very unsettling. Yeah, I agree. Something kind of shifty. Yes. Going yes. on with him. Mm-hmm. Well, luck. Uh, you know, if you don't like Jacoby as a character, you're in luck in this episode because he is assaulted. Yes. By a stranger. Oh well. Um, we still don't know who at this point assaulted him. Correct. We don't, and I'm not sure that it's ever. Is it ever? I think maybe Cooper does kind of reconstruct it. Eventually, yeah, eventually. I mean, but it's got to be Leland, right? I think it might be Leland. Yeah, Leland's busy in this episode. Um, and I assumed that he was the one, you know, following Maddie to the park and then watching um, Bobby watch her and then Jacoby um, in the previous episode. And I still kind of think that. I I guess it's not completely clear, and maybe the second season will contradict that, but I, I think it's Leland. And who else would it be? Like, right. Right. Um, you know, because Jacoby's not really caught up in any of the other plot lines. No. And we know at the, by the end of this episode that Leland has kind of cracked, um, that he is capable of violence. Right. Well, we'll, we'll get to that, but we uh, we have the nice psycho shot mm-hmm. uh, of J- Jacoby's eye. Yeah. And then that dissolves into the roulette wheel. Mm-hmm. And we're now at one eye jacks. Wasting our time. Right. And so this is interesting because it establishes that in terms of the, the timeline, we're not, not much time has passed. Yes. Uh, since the last episode. Mm-hmm. And so, right, we're we're staying with Cooper and the Bookhouse Boys at One Eye Jacks, uh, and what they're doing. It's kind of unclear at first, but it becomes apparent that they are trying to uh, entrap Jacques in some way, mm-hmm. so that they can arrest him. Yes, and get more information about Laura's last night alive. Yes. Um, and so there's some cutting between between that action and Audrey. But I think before we get to Audrey, we do get that scene I mentioned between Cooper and Jacques because Cooper is saying that he is actually the bank behind um, behind Leo. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. And right. And now he has another mission for Jacques to go on. Mm-hmm. But uh, he also, yeah, kind of is trying to find out more information about what Jacques and Leo were doing with Laura and Ronette. And um, it, it, it kind of revolves around the, the chip mm-hmm. that is cracked. Yes. Because at one point they were, I think, essentially torturing Laura. Yeah. Although... You know, well, they tied her up and which she wanted. Right. And this is a little clearer 
Well, it's all ambiguous, but the ambiguity is clearer in Fire Walk With Me because you see it, mm-hmm. that there is a kind of... Uh, There's a shift that happens. Like right. it, it was consensual BDSM on some level, but by the end of the scene, as it were, um, they've gone too far. And exactly. um, she's pretty clearly in distress. And uh, they both like that. I mean, Jacques and Leo both like that. Right. Yeah. That's an, it's an interesting ambiguity to present that line. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure whether that's a kind of conservative take that, you know, the one necessarily is, is part and parcel with the other that sure that what Laura was seeking was to be degraded. Yeah. Like self harm. That was that there's really no clear line or mm-hmm. even the fact that they would think to make that distinction. Yeah. Um, if that is actually saying, yeah, there is, there is a line between what Laura wanted and, and what she didn't want and, mm-hmm. um, how she was being abused yes. by these men when mm-hmm. they crossed that line. Right. Uh, so maybe we'll get into that more when we get to firewalk with me. Sure. I mean, it's clear from the scene that Cooper at least sees this as unambiguously torture i think from his face you can tell he's pretty disgusted with jacques and what jacques describes yes and right jacques i think he says that she liked being tied up yeah but then clearly they were then he talks about how she kept screaming Mm because the bird was attacking her yeah and instead of uh, intervening they just make uh, a joke out of it give her yeah put the chip in her mouth mm-hmm. as she's effectively being tortured and say uh, yeah you just take the torture yeah you know, bite, bite down on the bullet. bite the bullet yeah i think cooper is also disgusted by just how casually jacques talks about it right i mean he knows that jacques knows that Laura ended up being murdered <laughs> that night. Um, he suspects that Jacques did it himself, which of course adds to his disgust at how cavalier he's being. But either way, even if it's somebody else, it's a pretty cold way to talk about mm-hmm. someone who you had sex with a few hours before they were brutally killed. Yeah. And it doesn't really seem to be something that Jacques is thinking about at all. No. No, of course not. Jacques is a scumbag. He's a low life. Yeah. There's not really that much complexity there. No, no. I do you want to point out that the actor that played Jacques died recently? Yes. Yeah. And um, I think he's very effective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, from what I understand, just a really, really nice guy, too. Yeah. And in a way, he's... I think he, uh, of the characters who are just villains, mm-hmm. like Jacques, Hank, Leo, I think he, he was the best actor among them. Absolutely. And that's the most believable character. Yeah, 100%. Uh, it's a character that I feel feel like I, kn- I know that guy. Yeah, it's. Um, I feel like when movies and TV shows when they have somebody who you could credibly call a sociopath as a character. Um, it's always sort of over the top, like they're some kind of super villain or they are, I don't know, 
deliberately sadistic. They just torture people for no reason. They do like insane elaborate things. They're all like, you know, Hannibal Lecter. But I have, you know, reservations about the very idea of, a, of sociopathy, but I think there are people in the world who don't exercise their empathy muscle very much. Let's put it that way. And they are more like Jacques. They're just kind of like people coasting through life who don't really think about other people's pain. Right. Well, it's all compartmentalized. Exactly. There are probably people in Jacques' life that he loves sure. and cares for. Sure. Perhaps his his very large family. <laughs> his very large collection of brothers including the, his cousin maybe who looks exactly like, like him yes who we will see in the return although I, I love that though i love that the return like brought back so many actors even when they had no reason to right. just because you know they wanted to like have a family reunion or something yeah so uh we cut to Audrey and Blackie. Mm -hmm. uh, is there anything that stood out to you about this scene? Um, Audrey's One-Eyed Jack's costume is noticeably classier than the costumes worn by the other girls at One-Eyed Jack's, which I think is interesting. Obviously, we're supposed to... It's supposed to make Audrey stand out because she's mm. the main character in the scene. But, but I think it is interesting. Hers is... You know, it's sort of white and floaty. She has a lot more coverage mm -hmm. than the other girls who are basically walking around in lingerie, um, like underwear. And their stuff is all pretty garish, like lots of clashing colors and patterns and textures. But hers is actually nice. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, or like nicer. Right. And it's also white, which you don't really see elsewhere at One Eye Jackson. And it's, I think that's very deliberate. Yes. Well, in, in her costuming and then in the room that she's put in when she waits for the boss, mm -hmm. there's a, it's a kind of mixing of sensuality and innocence. Yes, absolutely. I with the soft colors. Right. The softness mm -hmm. of the fabrics. Um, there's a sort of, well, she has the card. Yes. Which I guess thematically is because this is a gambling establishment, but it almost, there's a, I almost detected a sort of Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, subtext. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's right. I think too, they don't come out and say it, but we know from the previous episode where Blackie clocks Audrey as somebody who has no sex work experience. Right. That she's being deliberately presented to the boss. Oh, right, yeah. As a virgin. Yes. Not just the new girl at One-Eyed Jacks, because there have been other new girls at One-Eyed Jacks, but this this is an untouched girl. It's, like, extra special. Yeah, right. And gross. Well, right, which... Yeah, and I think we talked about this in our previous episode. That's part of the appeal yeah. here mm -hmm. for these men. Yes. Not just that these women will have sex with them mm -hmm. as they, you know, but that the the power dynamic, their vulnerability mm -hmm. in youth is 
part of what's on sale. Right. But I also think that um, being a virgin is not a requirement for joining no. when I jacks pretty clearly. No, no, not yeah. at all. But, mm -hmm. um, so Audrey, what I'm saying is that Audrey, I think is meant to stand out from the other girls there in multiple ways. Right. Yeah. Uh, so then what happens we see the results of the 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 operation with Jacques, mm -hmm. where they entrap him. Yes. Um, they, yeah. So he's they get him to drive to some location and mm -hmm. to meet someone, and he is apprehended. Yes. And uh, Harry is there, and Andy is there, and they're taking him into custody, but he. Jacques uh, kind of wriggles loose and we get a resolution goes of for a gun. Andy can't shoot plot line. Yes, right. So that was, yeah, that's a, a, a pretty clear narrative arc mm -hmm. that Andy has to learn how to be a man. Yes. And this is where he becomes a man mm -hmm. finally by using his piece. Right, his mechanical dick that murders people. Right. Well, he didn't kill Jacques, but he—I think he shot him in the arm. Yeah. Uh, it's so that's interesting. I mean, I think that it's it's supposed to be a, almost like an applause moment, like, mm -hmm. and he did it. You know, he's yeah. so weak and almost uh, effeminate. Mm -hmm. That uh, we all we all really wanted him to be a man. Yeah, huh? and I, I'm really uncomfortable with that. Although it's interesting, you know, and I think that's probably what Mark Frost had in mind. But if if we complicate that a little bit by thinking about it in the context of what the Bookhouse Boys are, mm -hmm. and also the the whole show and how Annie's character in the Return, yes, I think it's not so simple. Because uh, for a few reasons, you know, this whole plot line of Andy trying to be a man, mm -hmm. it's kind of also, uh, it's happening at the same time that Cooper is being, an, uh, uh, you know, initiated into the Bookhouse Boys. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, and they have their own view of, of Twin Peaks. That's yes. complicated. Right. And we've talked about that. And I think that that has to complicate this moment. Mm -hmm. um, but also in the return, uh, Andy doesn't, there's no follow-up on this where like Andy is like a macho man that, right. I mean, I think he, he's still just, he's Andy. a little more competent, a little yeah, more forceful. Sure. Um, but crucially, it's not Andy that shoots mm -hmm. the bad guy in the return. Right. Andy's main, uh, action is an action of compassion yes so ultimately what what uh andy's bigger storyline mm -hmm. including you know from the beginning of the show to the return isn't about him becoming more manly it's yeah. about him ultimately he ascends mm -hmm. literally to a heavenly realm yeah to get a divine vision or mm -hmm. something because he didn't change. 
because yes. he was the same person he was in the pilot. Right. And I think um, Harry Gauze's performance in that scene is interesting because his face, he doesn't look triumphant, um, which I don't think would be something that would work anyway. And he doesn't even really look like grimly determined, right. I think, which is how, you know, somebody like Truman or Hawk or Cooper might right. look. He looks kind of, I don't know. I read it as just devastated. I don't know. I think it's kind of ambiguous. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't read it that way. I just thought he was projecting like, the calm determination of mm. someone who did what they had to do yeah. in the name of justice. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, like, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to deny that in this situation, mm-hmm. obviously we don't want Jacques to grab a gun and, and start murdering people. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying that he, that he did the wrong thing or anything thing. like that. It's just but I the think, way it's like obviously the bow wrapped around his story. Right. And I think you also can't ignore that it's paired with uh, his scene with Lucy later in the episode and, and all the guys at the sheriff's station are, you know, treating him like a hero and saying, yeah, man, go get her, you know. Um, and when he talks to her and they appear to get back together, she tells him that she's pregnant. So that's going to be subverted and complicated right. in the second season in multiple ways. But if you're watching for this for the first time, what you're seeing is both like metaphor and actuality. <laughs> like right. Andy's piece works. He can fire straight. Well, that's right. What true. you're being told. Which, but it gets become a more complicated issue as we continue to explore whether Andy is really a man. <laughs> right. And, and I think it's actually maybe that is the development and um in that it's pretty strongly implied in the second season that well we know that lucy was seeing somebody else too Mm -hmm. and and that that guy is the father of her child but she ends up picking andy right to actually raise the kid with and that is because it doesn't matter who can handle their piece best it's other things that Andy is good at. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. And another part of the context of Andy um, learning to, to use violence Mm -hmm. effectively in the name of justice is that the justice that they're doing, like the reason they're in the situation is because they have to arrest Jacques. Yeah. But ultimately what it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Nothing that they do matters no, in this episode. It doesn't. Jock can't even really give them information that well, is especially useful. He he tells them more about Laura's last night, but he doesn't know. Well, that, and that information uh, leads them to suspect that Leo was the killer. Right. Which is also false. Yes. So, you know, um, and he's doing the, the violence that has to be done. Mm-hmm. But did it have to be done? Yeah. And what actually was gained mm-hmm. here yeah and you know and to what extent was uh this violence different than the violence that leland did which was not sanctioned by the community as a whole but not everything the bookhouse boys do is sanctioned by the community as a whole and andy isn't a bookhouse boy is he it, oh hmm 
I assumed he would be, but is he not like he's good not enough? A, he, he's not in those scenes. He's not when know. they go to the book house and talk about That's it. True. He, yeah, he isn't there. Ed is interesting, and uh, interestingly, James is, but not Andy. Right. Well, maybe this is part of how he would prove himself and become one of them. Maybe. I don't know. So moving on, we've got um, James and Maddie and Donna. Listen to Laura's last tape. Right. And I think it's interesting um, for a lot of reasons. She shows a certain amount of contempt for James, which is very interesting and sort of complicates what we maybe thought we knew about that relationship, which had been presented as sweet and loving and, mm. you know, maybe the the good thing in Laura's life. Right. Um, but it seems that she thought of him at least sometimes as so another thing that was stifling her. Right. Well, can we believe that everything she's saying here is what she truly thinks, given that that's a good point. The context is this tape she's making for Jacoby. Right. I think she's absolutely performing when she makes tapes for him. Right. Um, I don't think that um, this is the real Laura any more than anybody saw the real Laura. Right. I don't, I mean, I don't really think that that's a useful concept anyway. But um, yeah, I think she's performing. I think this attitude that you know she um i mean jacoby clearly has this idea of her as somebody who is uh like a sophisticated femme fatale like mm -hmm. she's she's a woman among boys right and that she maybe uses them and discards them and and um is wild and maybe manipulative and i think I think she's putting that on for him, maybe. Right. And so she's playing up um, whatever annoyance she feels with James. But it's probably what part of what she feels about James. I think it's part of what she feels about James. I think she does think he's a little dumb. And I think maybe that... Well, he is. Well, he, he, really, he is. really is dumb. But, but I also think that you can't divorce Laura's feelings of self-loathing from any of this right and i think maybe she would always have a just a little bit of contempt at least for somebody who was as devoted to her as james seems to have been right exactly he must be dumb because he loves me yeah yeah even though i'm so bad and right. i can do all these bad things yes but maybe also uh she might have a sense that she is a, in a way is above these people in that mm -hmm. they don't know what the world is really like, but she yeah, has. Yeah, they haven't experienced all of the bad parts of the world right. that she has. So when, you know, if, if James would tell her, yes, you're beautiful, you're wonderful, I love you, mm -hmm. we can be happy, she feels like he is uh, living in a fantasy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which is not entirely false. No. Um, she is seeing like real parts of the world, but also she's like wrapped up in them. She can't see 
Well, I guess that, that's that's kind of uh, the big question of Twin Peaks. Once you've had a glimpse into these realities, mm -hmm. is there a way out of the labyrinth? Yes. Is there a way to, once you've seen the chaos beneath, which is not just beneath, but constituent mm -hmm. of the scene reality, yeah. um, is there a way to get some control over that? Hmm. Just to, to be, you know, to do as Cooper tries to do and use violence to do good, hmm. use the chaos to impose order. Hmm. Is there a way out of the labyrinth or do you wind up inevitably lost in the labyrinth as Cooper might be right. later on? Right. I don't know. I think it's um, the other thing that's important about this is James, after listening to the tape, he says, it's good that I heard it. Mm -hmm. It feels like a scene that can only happen in a finale for that reason. And in, in that James is maybe putting his relationship with Laura to bed for the first time. Did you get that sense? I had trouble. Or he's trying to. I wasn't sure what... Um... Well, I wasn't sure what he was feeling because the actor was making the same expression he always does. Yeah, Poor I James. think what what you what you're saying is uh, makes sense to me mm -hmm. as an explanation. Yeah, for why he would say that mm -hmm. uh, that he's trying to put it to bed, um, or he. Yeah, I don't know. I wish I wish the actor were better so that I had a, a sense of what the character's going through. Yeah, yeah. And I wish they spent a little bit more time on how Donna was feeling about all this. Um, they That's will. Right. They will in the second season. She'll talk a little bit more about what she's found out about Lara and how that makes right. her feel. And... Um, how to a real extent she's kind of jealous of her and i think all of that is good and interesting but i i wish we got a little bit more of it in these scenes um because for donna of course it has to be both painful almost as painful it is as it is for james to hear laura talk this way because it, it's revealing just how much she didn't know mm -hmm. about what her best friend was doing and what her best friend was going through. Right. And I think Donna too sees Laura's relationship with James as kind of idyllic. And that's interesting that she doesn't really seem to have any jealousy there. Mm -hmm. It's like she's by starting a relationship with James herself, she's doing it for Laura in a way she's loving James for her. Right. Um, but the other stuff, you know, she has a much more ambiguous reaction to that. And I, yeah, I'd like to see more of it. Right. Yeah. It's the function of this scene is a little unclear to me mm -hmm. um, how it's supposed to work in relation to the rest of the, the series. Well, I think it's um, laying a, a breadcrumb trail that is another red herring which is that um she was killed by leo johnson um, oh right yeah we should have talked about that the right. mystery man the mystery man i for the longest time i thought i assumed the mystery man was bob mm -hmm. 
but it's pretty clear here that it is Leo. It's Leo. And I think, um, especially when you look at Firewalk with me, the way she talks about Bob then, um, it, she just doesn't talk about him in the same way. Yeah. And it's interesting because it means that Jacoby really was not close. No, he did. He never got anywhere near. No, the truth about Laura. No, even the thing, even the secret that she was keeping from him, the you know the known unknown. Yeah, right. The, that the closest the closest she comes to actually telling somebody is um, what's his face on her Meals on Wheels route. Right. Um, where she says that there's somebody who's been. Um, coming to her she says since right. she was 12 and it's clear she's you know distressed about it it's it's traumatic for her to even talk about but she doesn't say who right. yeah right. yeah right so yeah it's like there's uh you know there are all these there's a locked door mm -hmm. but behind that there's just a hundred more locked doors yeah here. yeah um Jacoby thought he was on the verge of something. Mm -hmm. um, but in a kind of Kafkaesque fashion, uh, that was just another another layer. Yeah. Because it was really just Leo that she was talking about. Mm -hmm. And Leo's a bad guy. Yes. Uh, Leo was a bad dude. Leo was a bad dude. But he didn't murder her. No, and... I mean, as much as Leo is a bad dude, I think on the list of people who hurt Laura, he's not as high as some others. Right. Uh, yeah, and actually, since we're talking about Leo, we can go ahead and say what happens to him later mm -hmm. is that he gets taken out by Hank. Yes. Uh, he gets shot a lot. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. This time, right through the window. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that also feels like the culmination of something. There are just so many shots throughout the first season of people looking through the windows at the Johnson home, the barriers right. of the Johnson home not actually being protective. So somebody getting shot through the window at the Johnson home is pretty much summing that up. Yeah. Uh, and may maybe I shouldn't be so down on Mark Frost as a director mm -hmm. because uh, he does, and remembering he there's a nice sort of, rack focus effect yeah it in is nice scene. Mm -hmm. uh as from bobby's perspective we see hank come into focus mm -hmm. through the window right it's a nice shot um so yeah this is basically we're seeing all the plot lines get wrapped up or not wrapped up um blown up as i said before that mm -hmm. uh it, it's a culmination as Hank is wrapping up. He's tying up loose ends by killing Leo because mm -hmm. Leo set the fire at the mill. So yes. I, uh, that's what I assume was going on because mm -hmm. Hank gets the go ahead from Ben Horn mm -hmm. to kill Leo. Yes. After Leo sets the fire at the mill mm -hmm. in which he, uh, which is supposed to kill uh, Catherine, mm -hmm. it was really, that's the main part of the plan. Right. Uh, and then Shelly is just, Leo wants to just have get to rid of Shelly. Yeah. Because he hurt her so bad. Yes. Right. Yes. So, right. And, and the, well, okay. Before we get to the mill, 
we have Nadine's suicide attempt. Mm. Can we back up a bit? I want to talk about Ben Horn. Sure. We find out in this episode that he is the owner of One Eye Jacks. Had that been clear before? It's clear that he was a frequent patron. Right. I don't think it, I think that's supposed to be a reveal. Yeah. When uh, it's pretty obvious, his department store is their number one procurer. Yeah. So we find that out later in the episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. That Ben, or so yeah, that Jackie calls him boss. Blackie. Blackie. Yes. Yeah. Blackie calls him boss. Jackie is a more normal name than Blackie. I yeah, guess. it's weird. Why is she Blackie? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah, we'll get to that then. But Nadine's suicide, I think, is pretty desperately sad. Yeah, it's quite sad. And I think the show actually does a good job of taking this character who is maybe a little, uh, wanted to say shrill, mm. uh, in or abrasive, abrasively yes. written and acted mm-hmm. as a kind of, uh, yeah, like, person who is uh very strange and their strangeness is a problem for everyone yes and, and their it, strangeness unlike the log lady their strangeness does not make them likable yes and she's just pathetic enough that you feel guilty for disliking her but you can't not and that's that puts you in the shoes of it of Ed. Ed. yeah because she's not making him happy and in some ways she is kind of hectoring and awful to him but he also knows that he has the upper hand and has a lot of power to hurt her and uh he has more power to hurt her than she does to hurt him and that's when he feels guilty when he feels guilty and he's about to feel guiltier right but i think this scene does a good job of taking a character of make of Making you sympathize with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I sympathize with her. Um, because in previous episodes, she was a bit more like the plot device creating tension for Ed, uh, Ed and Norma. Right, right. And here it's, yeah, it's very sad that she, you know, she gets dressed up and she, she's kind of carefully laying out. Mm-hmm. All of the implements. Yes. In an almost ritual fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then that's that's the uh, that's the cliffhanger for that storyline. Yeah, and I think Well Ed comes and finds Ed her. Ed comes and finds her. I think it's also another instance, this is important, of something happening while they're all at one eyed jacks. it's another thing that they're ignoring or missing because they're focusing on the wrong stuff. If Ed hadn't been, you know, on the job with the bookhouse boys at one eye Jack's, which isn't even his job. um, It wouldn't have happened, or at least it wouldn't have happened right then. Or he would have found her um, while she was in the laying out the implements stage instead of after. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I've got some thoughts about that, but let's let's hit the remaining plot points. Okay. Because we have Jacques at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we have some business between Hank and Josie. Yes. Yes. Um, establishing, yeah, well, we already knew that they're working together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, he's being very menacing. Mm-hmm. 
Um, oh, right. He, uh, he, he, he makes them like blood siblings or something. Yeah. It's very siblings is an interesting way to put it. Well, I was thinking of the term blood brother. Right. But I think it's very, it's a very sexually charged scene. Right. It's, he's being very menacing in a very particular kind of way. He's, he's basically saying that now that we're in this together, we're married in a sense. Right. The, there's an intimacy in being partners in crime Mm -hmm. that they have that she can't get away from she can't she can pretend like they don't have this connection right right but um he's threatening her he's he's reminding her of everything that he knows and that he could potentially do to her right yeah and it's interesting because we're at this point there's still a lot we don't know about josie Mm -hmm. and She's obviously not the innocent person that she seemed to be earlier right. in the season. Uh, but we don't yet know that she, yeah, that there's, that she's wrapped up in something a lot mm-hmm. bigger than even, you know, Ben Horn and, and Hank. Yes. Uh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. The whole organized crime yakuza angle i guess story (laughs) Um, in in all the ways that season two goes off the rails right but i guess what's important is that in this scene she is in some ways uh hank's peer Mm -hmm. uh, that she's not defenseless yeah she is obviously afraid of hank Mm -hmm. but it doesn't stop her from from doing what she's doing and is this the first time we get confirmation or was this something that we just didn't talk about in a previous episode that Josie had her husband killed? I th- I think that this is the closest we get to confirmation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That Hank was involved in some way. Right. Yeah. I, because, and although I didn't quite follow that somehow that was related to Hank being in jail mm-hmm. or in prison. Right. That he had to be in a car wreck mm-hmm. for some reason. It, it was low and clear. Yeah. But obviously that, yes, that they have a long history together. Right. Right. And then, okay, so now Jacques, Jacques is in the hospital. Yes. And he talks to Cooper Mm -hmm. and we learn a little bit more about that last night. Yes. And what he tell, what he says seems to indicate that it must've been Leo who killed Laura. Yeah. Everything is pointing towards Leo at this point. Right. Um, And then, And I suppose that they would, you know, uh, assuming that Leo was the killer, they need Jacques to testify against him. Mm-hmm. But that's not going to work out no. because he is murdered by Leland. Do you think it's Leland or, in retrospect, do you think it's Bob? That's a really tough question. Yeah, I'm not sure. 
it's uh, a really chilling scene. Mm-hmm. Um, we see Leland earlier at the sheriff's station where he mm-hmm. finds out, somehow he has already found out that they caught somebody, yeah. a suspect. Mm-hmm. How did he know that? Well, I mean, there were there were people there. People talk. Um, but how much time had even passed? That's true. That's true. <laughs> All of this stuff is happening, like, almost in real time, it seems. Mm-hmm. Or it, it all happens pretty fast, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's... Because it's, it's all the same. It's all one night. Yes, it is all, <laughs> it is all one night. Because when, at the end of the episode, Dale gets back to his room. Mm-hmm. After being out at One Eye Jack's. Yeah, and Audrey left him the note. Right. So it's, uh, yeah. And that, that's why Cooper doesn't know about any of this stuff mm-hmm. that, uh, Jacoby got, well, actually he knew that Jacoby got knocked out. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they did talk to Jacoby, but yeah, it's kind of hard to make it line up as. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure that through the grapevine people said, Hey, goofy Andy shot a guy. And right. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, I could probably sort uh, sit down and, and make a, a diagram, mm-hmm. uh, a kind of primer like yeah. map of who's doing what when. But Yeah. I mean, the important thing is that Leland finds out that they arrested someone and yeah, what happens next? Right. He, he kills Jacques. He ties him up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting. Yes. Because Jacques had tied up Laura. Mm-hmm. I think we're supposed to make that connection. Yeah, for sure. I think so. In obviously, in retrospect, it's more sinister. Yes. And we, when we see his face, mm-hmm. it's terrifying. It's yeah. It's incredible acting. Yeah, I mean, Ray-wise, all through this first season, I think he might be the MVP. Um, yeah. But... Yeah, he's great. Well, it's episode. like the one the one uh, part of the episode that is Lin Chien mm. because his face is frozen in this rictus that's kind of halfway between horror and a kind of ecstasy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and immediately you want to think, okay, he's horrified at what he just did. Mm-hmm. He's a, a father just driven mad by grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had, just has to take vengeance. It's a time to kill situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he hears the, the uh, what does he hear? The alarm? Yeah. Here's the alarm and his face changes just like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have to wonder like, well, how is he really out of his wits? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why that's why I wonder, like, is it Leland or is it Bob? Because I think it it could really go either way. And I think it really makes Leland ambiguous already because yeah, it, it's one kind of story if he's just been driven insane by grief. We've seen a lot of evidence for that. But he he snaps out of it pretty quickly. It's right. very sinister. It's very sinister. Although I do think the the way the story plays out, it it has the effect of 
um, drawing attention away from Leland. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, I think it's cleverly done because Leland right. is in the background for so long. Mm-hmm. And then they foreground him, mm-hmm. but they do so in a way where they, they put him in the, at the center of a pretty compelling story on its face. Mm-hmm. You, that it becomes a story, a time to kill story. Did, right. you know, he did this thing that was illegal, but maybe we're sympathetic to him right. and maybe think there was some kind of justification higher than the law mm-hmm. that he would want to uh, have, you know, kill the man that did this to his daughter. And it takes him out of the running as a suspect in some ways. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's very clever how it does that. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it's hard, it is really hard to to watch these scenes and the way that Ray Wise plays them and mm-hmm. to think. He didn't know. Yes. He claims that he didn't know yeah, at this what, point. What did they tell him to get him to make that face? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what I really want to know. Does he think that that's how a grieving father would act? I think he's just out of his mind at this point out of his mind, but doesn't want to get caught still. But right. yeah, it's, um, it's very scary. Out of his mind, but doesn't want to get caught. There's just, it's just, right. But somehow, and maybe this is just projecting since mm-hmm. we know how it turns out. It's just both of those reactions make sense that he yeah. has this kind of horror mm-hmm. or that he's in a kind of um, transport mm-hmm. of, vengeance when he does it and then when he realizes oh i could get caught Mm -hmm. his expression changes that makes sense but both of those expressions are just a bit too much they're so far apart and then for the change to happen that quickly it's yeah his face is just too uh it's almost like uh you know the 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 old people in Mulholland Drive, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, or or the faces that Bob himself makes, it's, right? It's pretty close. Mm-hmm. And then going to like a, a d- immediately to this calculating, it's yeah, phase. it's not you're the lawyer here, but it's not an insanity defense that would work in court because he found out about something. He went to the hospital room secretly. He planned this and was pretty cold and deliberate about it. It wasn't just like he snapped and didn't know what he was doing. He knew what exactly. he was doing. Right. Yeah. That if, would... he, if he was driven crazy, it's from thinking that this is an okay thing to do. Right. Typically the legal standard would be that you, you simply cannot tell right from wrong. Yeah. They... But that's, it's been, Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a criminal lawyer. No. And uh, I have it. You know, the last time I went over this was in in class, but uh, or when I studied for the bar. But mm-hmm. basically, yeah, it, it's if it, what you said is exactly right. That to successfully use that defense mm-hmm. in most states, you really have to not be able to make any kind of calculations at all. Yes, yes. And you you can't cover it up. Mm-hmm. You can't. Um, you can't have planned it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's an interesting question that he, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't a crime of passion. You know, he tied him up. Yeah. What did he, what did he tie him up with? Was that just something he found? I don't know. I'll have to go back and look at it, but yeah, I'm not sure what he tied him up with. 
yeah. It, at any rate, he, right, he was out of his mind with grief, mm-hmm. it seems, uh, or that's how it appears. But to answer your question, I think it is Bob. Mm. But I also think the distinction between Bob and Leland is not so clear cut. No, no, I think it's it's a lot blurrier than some would like it to be. Right, and the fact that this the motivation works on both levels. Yes, that it does. both Leland and Bob have motivations. Mm-hmm. I think shows that that they're not completely distinct. Yes. And certainly in this moment, they have overlapping interests. And how do you distinguish between those? Yeah. And, you know, sexual jealousy is also a motivation. Yes. And that will... will let's pick up that thread when we talk about Firewalk With Me. Okay. Because there's some... We'll definitely talk about the, the distinction between Bob and Leland there. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are some scenes that are definitely Leland. Yep. Uh, being very controlling and scary and, and domineering. Absolutely. And perhaps sexually jealous yep. of Absolutely. his daughter. 100%. So let's talk about the scene at the mill when it's burning. Um, Shelly is there. Shelly's storyline of spousal abuse is coming to a head. Mm-hmm. And Catherine saves her, which is honestly pretty surprising. Yeah, it is. Yeah. This, this kind of like a moment of redemption for Catherine in some ways. Right. Do you think she has any ulterior motives? Mm, I don't know. I mean, I think... I don't think Catherine is an evil person in the way that, like, Bob is evil or the way that even Leo and Jacques are um, kind of sadistic. Uh, And Hank is, too. I think Catherine doesn't really care about other people, but if someone is tied up in front of her in front of a burning building and she right. can help them, then she does. I, yeah. I, she doesn't actually want to hurt Shelly for any reason. Right. So she helps her. It's, um, yeah, I, I think it's a useful dividing line between somebody like Catherine, who's really just kind of corrupt and mm-hmm. um, embittered. Um, and maybe right. careless with other people's feelings a lot of the time, but she's, right. she's not one of the big baddies. Right. Yeah. I hate to nitpick the realism of mm-hmm. a show like Twin Peaks, Yeah. but they have plenty of time to get out of that building before it, like it's a, it's a really bad plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the fire moves really slowly. Yeah. I don't think that Josie is a criminal mastermind here. Or Leo, for that or matter. Or Leo, yeah. It's it's not a great plan. Because no. the idea is that Catherine's supposed to get there and then die in, in the fire immediately. But she gets there, and it, the uh, the bomb, I guess, it's mm-hmm. not really a bomb. Right. It hasn't gone off yet. Yeah. And then it goes off, and then she spends some time, like, talking mm-hmm. and thinking about what to do next. And, and also, keep, like... Leo maybe took... she's maybe what she's th- sorry it just occurred to me that maybe well, actually what she is thinking is should she save Shelley or, or just mm-hmm. run right but like Leo who is you know carrying this plan out he took the time to knock Shelley on the back of the head and tie her up and put her in the burning building he couldn't do that to Catherine 
Mm, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure that he was in on that part of the plan. Mm, yeah, maybe, maybe. You know, I think he was just supposed to set the fire. Right. But uh, I don't know. It's unclear. Mm -hmm. But it seems, yeah, it's it's pretty sloppy that they didn't ensure a way for Catherine to be in the fire more, right. more than that. Other than just like hoping she'd show up and wouldn't leave. Exactly. Right. Yeah. She's just supposed to like. <laughs> she's supposed to just run into a burning building, you know. Right. Or it has Full to be proof. timed perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Or yeah. But at any rate, yes, she saves Shelley, and then Pete runs into the building mm -hmm. to save them. Yeah. Good old Pete. And actually, do we see how we see him going to the building? Mm -hmm. Does he? Does he save them? Well, remember, like, Catherine does her whole um, yellow face thing in yes. the second season. So oh, she's right. pretending to be dead for a bunch of Jeez. episodes. So I think people think that Catherine died. But was she... Okay, maybe we'll have to revisit this. Yes. Uh, when we talk about the next episode. Mm -hmm. It's... It's ridiculously convoluted. So where was Shelly? Did they just find Shelly somewhere? Maybe, yeah. Catherine just like got her out of the building and like left her by the entrance and then right. said, hmm, people are trying to kill me. I'm going to go into hiding. Right. But I think. Wouldn't Shelly be able to say what happened? That she was saved by Catherine? Yeah, you'd think. I don't know. That, that's, see... I'm going to blame Mark Frost for this. Uh, and maybe that's wrong. Mm. Maybe this was all Lynch's idea. Maybe. But I think it's always a problem when Twin Peaks gets too focused on the plot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the plot is not what makes it good. No, and also they're not... The writers aren't always that good at, at writing convoluted plots. Because mm -hmm. then it's like full of holes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I guess you can say, you know, nobody pays attention to Shelley or listens to her because if they did, they would be like, wow, we need to get you out of this abusive house. But, um, you know, maybe, maybe Shelley told everybody it was Catherine and no one paid That's any attention true. to I her. I mean, I will say for most of the season, mm -hmm. as we rewatch it, it is kind of impressive how, I think the writing is impressive because mm -hmm. it is very plot heavy. It's very dense on detail, small details. Yes that actually do matter yeah. and that actually do connect with each other. Mm -hmm. So it must have been, it, it couldn't have been easy to write this. No. <laughs> and certainly all the writers did a great job. But no. I think I've, this, maybe in this episode, it is starting to come off the rails a little bit Yeah. in terms of, well, I guess this happens, you know, you're so careful laying out steps and then you get to the end of the season and you're like, oh shit, we have to, we have to, we now actually definitely have to get mm -hmm. from A to B to C. Yeah. And if we, you know, it, it's probably impossible to to write a show like this and mm -hmm. actually have everything work just perfectly. Yeah. But this was one of the elements that, that stood out to me as being a bit of a plot hole or just kind of hard to believe. Yeah, I agree. 
All right. And but then, still, good for Catherine. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it, I wish that they had picked up on this as part of her character arc. Yeah, I agree. Instead of putting her in yellow face. Right. <laughs> yellow face drag. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So. Yeah. So, Ben, we find out things about Ben and his gang plan at the end of this episode. We, again, find out that he is the owner of One-Eyed Jacks. Right. Um, and before this, it's it's clear he has a strong connection to One-Eyed Jacks uh, and is a valued customer of One-Eyed Jacks. But I think this is our confirmation that he actually owns it, which means that Audrey is in uh, pretty serious trouble. Yes, uh, th this is the cliffhanger for her storyline. Yes. <laughs> Will she have sex with her dad? Yeah, and it's it's interesting, especially because they haven't revealed everything yet. But I think a lot of Audrey's quest to find out what happened to Laura mm -hmm. comes from a sort of admiration and a desire to walk in her footsteps. Right. In to a lot of ways. In her to fire walk in, in her footsteps. But <laughs> I think she's really fascinated by her. I think. You know, Audrey talks about how Lara was wild, but also she's really grateful to her for helping her brother. Right. She, I think, as much as anybody, sees those two different sides of Lara and is really compelled by that. And mm. so she's gotten the job that Lara had at the perfume counter, and now she's dipping her toe into sex work. But what is so interesting is that she's going to come even farther and closer than she knows to what actually happened with Laura, which is being raped by her father. Right. Uh, yeah, she's coming close to being Laura, and in the worst sense. <laughs> well, and that's that's you know the problem with her idealized notion of Laura is that she mm -hmm. doesn't see the other side of it. Yes. Yeah, I think she maybe sees Laura as somebody who is much more in control of her life. Right than Lara actually was. And that's of a piece with Audrey thinking that, you know, she's Audrey Horn, she gets what she wants. And that, yeah, Audrey thinks she's in control of this situation, but she, right. she really, really isn't. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I think everyone assumed that Laura was in control. Mm -hmm. And and really no one's in control in, in Twin Peaks. No. I think, the season, I think the show sets you up to think that Dale is in control. Yes. Yes, that's very true. And he's not. No. Because he gets shot. Dale gets shot when he gets back to his room and misses Audrey's note. Yes. <laughs> and so that's right. If we want to zoom out a little bit at the big picture here. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, I'm sure this is just a function of the the business of writing television that you want a cliffhanger mm -hmm. to drive up ratings, ensure that people tune in. Yeah. Um, put pressure on, on the network to make sure that you get a next season. Yeah. I don't know if that had been confirmed yet. I don't know that it had been confirmed. I think there was, I mean, ratings were quite high at this point, I think. Um and there was, yes, just some talk about, you know, well, if we bring it back, you have to, you have to resolve the mystery. Right. Um, 
but yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of reasons why they would want a cliffhanger here. Right. So that's, you know, but what's interesting is how that drives the, the thematic content of the show, mm -hmm. because what that means is that all of these things happen here. You know, we have, uh, the mill burns down. Yes. That, that in itself is a big deal. The mill is never rebuilt. That's the end of the mill. That's the end of the lumber industry in Twin Peaks, as far as we know. Exactly. They are now a surface economy. Exactly. A, a huge, uh, a major, you know, dialectical change. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In the, in the nature of their community has mm -hmm. happened. Yes. And in addition to these small tragedies, Nadine uh, attempting suicide. Mm hmm um, you know, we have Audrey, Audrey's plight. Uh, basically the, the problem here is that while Cooper was chasing down Jacques and Leo, all these horrible things happened that he was unable to stop. Yeah. And it, you know, it's possible that he, there was no other, just nothing else that he could have done with the information that he had, but it's hard not to connect that with the larger question that we had in earlier episodes of it. Is Twin Peaks a good place? Mm -hmm. And he believed that fundamentally it was. Yes. And that, that belief led him to side with the bookhouse boys who had a slightly different belief, but ultimately compatible, mm -hmm. which is that, Twin, yes, Twin Peaks is fundamentally good. But it is in danger from outside from forces. From outside influences. Yeah. So that's what they're chasing down, mm -hmm. the outside influences. And while they're chasing down the outside influences, it turns out that that Twin Peaks is full of misery and horror. Yeah. <laughs> completely. Mm -hmm. And that it's all connected. Yeah. And that what, you know, they, they're going to One-Eyed Jacks thinking that that's like, how the outside is getting in yeah, from across the Canadian border and mm -hmm. through, uh, uh, you know, these sketchy French Canadians. Yeah. When really it's the opposite as much as anything else. Because Van Horn owns mm -hmm. One-Eyed Jacks. And he sends, he's the boss. He sends girls from Twin Peaks into One-Eyed Jacks across the border. Right. It's going in the opposite direction. Right. So yeah we have all of these horrible things happening mm -hmm. that Cooper can't stop because they're all arising from the nature of Twin Peaks as a community, mm -hmm. but it's not an idyllic place. Yeah. And when he gets shot, it's in his hotel room, which again, the, I think the over, um, the great Northern, I almost said the overlook different story, the great <laughs> Northern hotel it is also somebody's home. The Horn family lives there. Right. And we talked a little bit about this. Like, why can't they just afford a mansion? They have enough money. Why do they all live at this hotel? And we've also talked in other episodes, and this one, how the homes that people live in in this series are really reflective of the dynamics of those families. Mm. Um, the Palmer house is very dark and oppressive. Um the Johnson house is uh, falling apart. There, there are no boundaries anywhere. Like things can get in and out. It's, it's chaotic. There's no protection. And the, 
the Horn family home is a home that's at once a business and a home. Mm-hmm. There, there are no boundaries between those things. And right. I think that that is important too. And that's like reflective of, yeah, a danger that Dale doesn't even notice. Right. Right. It, it, he, so he's, he's ineffective. He is led astray mm-hmm. to some extent, Yeah, you know, and, and he is, this is all, kind of coming out of his uh, Tibetan technique. Mm-hmm. It's true because that led him, th- them to look into Leo. Yeah. And there is the connection there mm-hmm. between Leo and Jacques and Laura. Yeah. But they didn't look that hard at Leland. They didn't look at him at all. And... Yeah, and, and I think that there's still Cooper still seems to miss the big picture, mm-hmm. and so it's interesting that the first time you watch it, Cooper is the hero who yeah. is the only person that can that can solve the mystery. Mm-hmm. But then once you know what the mystery is, it's a story about what Cooper doesn't know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And. Uh, it's it's a story about Cooper's weakness, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. That he he was wrong about Twin Peaks. He was wrong about what happened to Laura, and they do solve the mystery eventually. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I I wonder if this if this haunts him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it and guide some of his actions in the return. I think it would have to. Yeah, and um, but again, we'll we'll get to this when we get to that part of the return. But I don't, I don't know that he ever figures out what he did wrong. When he goes back in the return to undo something, he doesn't undo what he did wrong. Right. He doesn't, you know, go back and tell people now. Look at Leland. <laughs> he he tries to undo Lara's death completely, but that that doesn't and can't work. Right. Yeah, we'll have to revisit this. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that that's kind of the, the pathos of the whole premise that mm-hmm. he is solving a, a murder. Yeah. That the best he can do is give you more details about this horrible thing that happened. <laughs> he can't undo it. Right. And, and I think that's, you know that's the horrible thing about any desire for justice is that that's not really what people want. They want whatever happened to not have happened. Right. That, that is the only way to really make it right, but that's not possible. So you have to make your peace with something else. Right. Well, the next best thing that people settle for is that there's some kind of counterbalancing. Mm Mm-hmm through retribution. Yes. The show does undermine that as well by, by introducing the split between Bob and Leland Mm -hmm. so that you can't really be uh, satisfied when Leland dies. Right. And you also just even earlier than this, you can't be satisfied with Leland killing Jacques. No. Because you still don't know everything. 
Right. So how, how, you know, was justice ever really possible here? Right. Or what would it have looked like? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Because Cooper's law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So this is his whole purpose in life. Right. Is to serve justice. Yes. Uh, but it's interesting that he, it turns out he has this kind of side mission, which is to uh, investigate paranormal <laughs> activities. Yes, the Blue Rose cases. Uh, that's an inter interesting move because it's maybe a, it's an admission that that in this reality, you know, you that justice may not be possible mm -hmm. because we don't even know the nature of what we're dealing with. Yeah, and what we're dealing with is. Is not simple and there aren't distinct entities at work mm -hmm. there's not a distinct entity that you can punish yeah for uh for laura's murder right there are imminent uh and ambient mm -hmm. forces yes now i feel like i'm plagiarizing david foster wallace again but... <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean, though. And, and we talked about this in the episode with Laura's funeral a bit, that, you know, on some level, what Bobby says to everyone is true in, in that everyone's guilty. Right. Because if they didn't kill her themselves, they all hurt her or ignored her or misinterpreted what she was going through. Right. So when everyone's guilty, mm -hmm. if everyone's guilty, then nobody is. And then you can't really do anything. Well, or the only solution is a complete transformation of yes. society and its basis. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> but that's not really what this podcast yes. is about. Well, <laughs> no, you, you make sure there are no more Laura Palmer's. No more girls who go through what she well, went through. Absolutely. But, you, but how? How do you do that? Because By abolishing it, the nuclear family. Well, <laughs> I'm right. Joking. But it's not <laughs> right. That, but that's, yeah, it can't be. We just need to have the right law enforcement figures. Yeah. Because we do have them. Mm -hmm. You know, we but have. Cooper is as close as we could possibly get to a good law enforcement figure. And right. we still can't. You and can't even, do it. Even the bookhouse boys. Yeah. Right. They're, uh, they do some things that are questionable, but basically they're decent people. Mm -hmm. Truman is a good guy. Yeah. Hawk is a good guy. Yep. And Andy's a good guy. But yeah, like they, the problem is with the underlying structures of their society. Mm -hmm. And even with the, how, Basically, the self-conception of each person within Twin Peaks, mm -hmm. how they see themselves, their desires, how Twin Peaks is the kind of projection yes. of all of these fucked up desires mm -hmm. that the uh, characters have. Yeah. Uh, but they that they have... I don't know. They've turned it into this apparently idyllic place. Mm -hmm. But there has to be someone that, you know, eats the sin. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's Laura. Right. So they would, everyone in Twin Peaks would have to actually have 
start to interrogate their own identity of themselves as a, an individual separate from other people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. may, maybe that gets into uh, why uh, David Lynch is interested in things like transcendental meditation. Yeah, I think, I think that is probably true. That he sees the solution as having to come from outside of what can be conceptualized in some way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and his solution isn't, a, you know, a, a wholesale change of the material basis. Right. Of the society and how it reproduces itself. No, it's a change of the self. Right. But interestingly, he still sees those as connected. Yes. That yeah. the soul of Twin Peaks as a society mm-hmm. and its psychological hangups and its spiritual rot. Mm-hmm are connected to Twin Peaks as a material place that has an economy that yeah. is a, you, uh, a, a lumber town going to seed mm-hmm. on, and on the verge of becoming a tourist town. A tourist town mm-hmm. And on the verge of being kind of gutted out and transformed from a place, from a place with small town problems to a place with maybe the problems of anonymity and facelessness and yeah uh all the problems we see in the return which are all problems that existed in twin peaks before but they existed in like small pockets and now yeah everyone goes through them but instead of being you know all of Laura's problems were everyone's business for yeah. better or for worse. And in the return, Twin Peaks is a place where violence gets routinely ignored. Right. Even when it happens in the public sphere. Whereas before it was a place where violence sometimes happened in the private sphere and people looked away from it. Right. Yeah. In the return, all of Laura's problems are multiplied, you know, a hundredfold mm-hmm. and repeated and yeah. echoed, but no longer in a way that is meaningful mm-hmm. the town can't even come together and have like a hypocritical funeral about it yeah they don't they don't even have any plausible deniability anymore for why they didn't notice right what laura was going through or what shelly was going through they see people you know get hit by cars and get beaten up and um have uh emotional meltdowns in the middle of a nightclub and they they just completely ignore it Right. And, you know, it's, it's hard to say, you don't want to wind up saying what Cooper says that Twin Peaks is this idyllic place Mm -hmm. because everyone knows your business. Yeah, obviously, it's that's not true either. And Mm -hmm. yet, we see it transforming into something that where a society where the there's not even the the unity of a society having shared complicity (laughs) yeah you know like even that unity is gone yeah um adam curtis talks about this a lot in his documentaries that um a lot of social breakdown comes when people don't have stories to tell about themselves that they can all agree on and i don't know how i feel about that theory but 
I think that is also what is happening to Twin Peaks. They don't, right. they don't even have an agreed on narrative anymore Right. by the time the return happens of what kind of place they are. Mm-hmm. And when you have that and when everybody basically agrees on it, they're all at least somewhat working to preserve that thing. Right. When you don't have anything that the whole community is working to preserve, then in some sense you don't have a community anymore. Right. And there are upsides and downsides to that kind of communal narrative about yourself. Right. Um, often it means that somebody like Lara who questions that narrative or shows its falsity gets treated really brutally. Right. But, you know, we can see what the alternative is too, I think. Yes, but it's also important to realize that it's not like these are two choices where you can pick the one that you think is better no. because the one flows from the other. Exactly. So there was never a choice between them. Mm-hmm. The return is simply what happens mm-hmm. after the mill burns down. Yeah, yeah. Um, which happened because the town couldn't confront what it was. Yes. Well, on that note, yeah, so we, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got pretty far afield. Um, next episode, again, we're going to talk about season one in general. And for now, you can follow us on Twitter at notaboutbunny or email us at istwinpeaksaboutthebunny at gmail.com. All right. And yeah, we, uh, it'd be great to hear some feedback or just general thoughts, questions, and uh, if we get any questions, we might discuss them on a future episode. Nope. Not, <laughs> we're not doing it. I don't know. I, I think it would be fun to be a, a little more participatory. Mm, I don't know. If, if you want to hear that, then you're going to have to send something good. So far, we haven't gotten anything good. So well, I'm sure all of our listeners are really intelligent. <laughs> okay. And okay. All right. So you try to butter up your audience. Mm. All right. Rather than put them down. Hey. <laughs> okay. That's, that's Unless they want to be put down. I, you know, I guess some people do, but whatever. <laughs> all right. Well, we could cut this or not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So long, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. We are expecting to release new episodes of It's Not About the Bunny every two weeks. So if you like what you've heard and you want to keep listening, please subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review. If you don't like what you're hearing, that's cool. But please, please keep it to yourself. Bye.